Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the latest political and economic developments across Europe, including the UK party conferences, the fast approaching Supreme Court decision, and whether impending environmental catastrophe could actually save the euro. With Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, Senior Government Relations Specialist, Sophie Traherne, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello. In a week that saw the Amazon Chief Executive Jeff Bezos announce that the firm would be purchasing 100,000 electric vehicles to help improve its carbon footprint, and Boris Johnson continuing to electrify opinion across Europe, we're all waiting with bated breath to see if the Supreme Court can defibrillate the parliamentary patient and get the pulse of British politics pounding again ahead of the 31st of October Brexit deadline. Joining me in the investment operating theatre this week, Sophie Traherne from Government Relations and Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. So let's pull on our scrubs, sharpen our scalpels and dissect this week's news in Word on the Street. Sophie, I'll start with you if I may. What's been going on with the Supreme Court? Yep, so as you know, the Prime Minister prorogued Parliament, ending the current parliamentary session early and MPs then set to return on the 14th of October and this decision has been challenged in the courts. Interestingly, in Scotland, judges deemed it to be unlawful, but in England, the court said it was lawful. So now the matter has been taken to the Supreme Court, where they have heard three days of arguments over whether or not it was lawful for the PM to suspend Parliament. Uh, So there were two appeals, one by Gina Miller's team and the other by the government, contesting the Scottish ruling that the decision was unlawful. And the judges will now spend the weekend deciding on these appeals, and we expect the decision early next week. Essentially, if the Supreme Court rules in favour of the government, so upholding the appeal, the current prorogation will be lawful and Parliament will continue to be prorogued until that October deadline. Uh, If the Supreme Court rules against the government, then the current prorogation of Parliament will be deemed unlawful. And in this case, the government would be mandated to bring back Parliament and start a new session immediately. But there are lots of questions about how all this works in practice. Who'd have the authority to recall MPs? When might Parliament return? Would there be a new Queen's speech, for example? So the interesting thing about all of this is the implications it has on uh, the next steps, on really future precedents, on our constitution. Um, Is this the courts getting involved in politics, something they've traditionally avoided? So lots of questions uh, still to be answered. So what are the key dates for us to keep an eye out for? Um, So we're still set to return uh, MPs on the 14th of October. That's a key date. Um, But uh, early next week, uh, not entirely sure when yet, but Monday, Tuesday, maybe we'll have this decision from the Supreme Court. And that could affect that October deadline. 14. Now, one of the things that I've noticed in the news is that the conversations around leaving with a deal seem to have picked up. There's a lot more positive rhetoric around that, including people like uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. So maybe you could, should we be believing that or what's been going on with the, with, with those conversations? Yeah, and um, Juncker was actually quite upbeat in an interview recently. He said, we can have a deal. And uh, even the Irish Prime Minister said this week that the mood music is good. Um uh, so lots of people reading into that a bit more positivity from the European side on the prospects of a deal. Uh, the UK government actually also submitted uh, what's called non-papers uh, to the European Commission outlining their 
proposals uh, to break the deadlock over the Northern Ireland backstop and non-papers essentially just means they are uh, ideas at this point. They're not formal policy positions or proposals from the UK government. Um, but that is quite an important moment. They are they are making their offer to the EU and the Brexit secretary is due to be in Brussels today. I would just say for all the warm words, um, you know, we do also hear that there's still uh, from from some uh, European Commission officials that they think there's still little in the way of substance with regard to these proposals. So um, it's yet to be seen whether this positivity will actually result in any tangible uh, uh, deal on the table. But it's the first time we've really heard something so positive in quite a long time. So council markets certainly seem to be listening. Uh, Sterling's been rising quite strongly in the news, but I mean, that may just be a positioning story, I guess. I mean, one of the interesting things that you're seeing, I guess, going into this, I mean, one of the ways that the Sterling is reacting uh, to this story, it may just indicate that people were too negative before and they're kind of readjusting their ideas about, uh, you know, the chances of uh, exiting with or without a deal. But the, I think that the no deal rhetoric had been bashed in so hard that it was almost the default position. So so perhaps you're right. But every, so everything to play for, lots to keep an eye on there. But again, it just goes to prove that uh, week by week, um, the dial can sort of flick from left to right, can't it? Now, twists so- and turns are just uncallable. Sorry, I keep on interrupting. <laughs> but I keep on watching this and just thinking like how we, you know, I mean, investors who think that they've got an edge here and think they can work it out quicker than everyone else, they just, I mean, well, they've got to be, a bit of humility in this situation is always a problem. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's about the volatility. You've said for a long time that the volatility is there and it's likely to stay. And trying to play that, trying to jump in and out and predict it is nigh on impossible. Now, Sophie, back to you. We're in the middle of the party conference season. I must confess, I have always looked at party conferences as something that's a little bit of sort of mutual backslapping and they're quite introspective affairs. Of course, with everything UK politics being so public at the moment, perhaps this season's party conferences are a bit more detailed and a bit more relevant to people. Can you tell us what's been going on with them? Yeah, so essentially the party conference season are uh, the, the main political parties gathering together for about two to three days where it's the party membership, um, MPs, councillors, uh, associations, peers, also lobbyists and journalists all gathering to debate policy, hear speeches, attend events, network, etc. Um, each conference is slightly different and it has its own quirks. Um, for example, there's the, the famous Glee Club at Lib Dems. Uh, Labour always have their rousing rendition of their anthem, Red Flag. And uh, there's also normally the Tory karaoke on the last night of conference. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, but the big moments include... Thank, thank goodness for mobile phones and YouTube and exactly. Twitter. That's all I yeah, can say. Yeah, expect to see some stuff on Twitter. Um, but the big moments include the high-profile speeches by cabinet and shadow cabinet uh, ministers. The leader speeches, of course, you'll remember Theresa May famously dancing on stage to ABBA's Dancing Queen last year, for example. Um, but expect lots of domestic policy announcements from all the parties uh, as they gear up for a general election, um, you know, NHS, policing, uh, the environment, etc. Um, there'll also be a lot of scrutiny, particularly at Labour this weekend in Brighton, on their Brexit policy. Uh, a lot of pressure for Corbyn's come out for Remain um, uh, and you'll have seen the Lib Dems said that their conference this week that their policy is to revoke Article 50 if they get a majority. Um, the Lib Dems, I would just say, they did have a fairly good conference. Um, they did have a, another defection, so their numbers are increasing all the time. Uh, and this uh, this time it was from the Tories. Um, they're not doing badly in the polls either, um, edging ahead of Labour in one YouGov poll. Um, so they're very much positioning themselves as the alternative to Corbyn's economics and Johnson's Brexit. So keep an eye out for Labour announcements this weekend in Brighton. Uh, Tories are then meeting in Manchester and also the SNP will meet in Aberdeen just as Parliament is due to return. 
return, obviously depending on the Supreme Court ruling on the 14th of October, so lots to look out for. Can I ask a stupid curveball question of Sophie? Uh, and that is, like, in terms of coalition, are there any rules governing sort of like manifesto commitments? If you're in, I don't know if you're sort of, you know, if you have a manifesto as a single party in power, you have to kind of follow through with it. But in terms of what we're talking about in terms of manifesto commitments here, is it different in coalition? What are the rules? All, all up for negotiation. Um, you know, when uh, I'm sure it's in David Cameron's book, if you'd like to purchase it, uh, <laughs> but uh, his negotiation with Clegg when they formed that coalition, it would have been, you know, a proper negotiation over this is a policy that I can't, uh, I can't, uh, ditch and I can't compromise on but this one I can so uh, everything's up for grabs in coalitions. Books from other former Prime Ministers are available. (laughs) Right Will, you don't get out of it that easily. I'm going to go over to you now if I may. So the Bank of England uh, met earlier this week and kept interest rates on hold. This was uh, off the back of the ECB cutting interest rates and the Fed also cutting interest rates. Now that's the last time the Monetary Policy Committee are going to meet before the 31st of October, if that is indeed the Brexit deadline. What uh, what, what have you and the team deduced from the uh, the MPC's announcements? They have as little visibility as us on the outlook for the short-term outlook for the economy. Uh, and this is, you know, it comes across in the statements. You know, they they, they, they pointed out that, you know, Brexit, uh, an exit without a deal could mean they cut rates and could mean they raise rates. Uh, so there's significant uncertainty still about the near-term trajectory. So it's, it's interesting that they don't have a specific scenario mm-hmm. that if one, then this that it, it, they still don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. It's a huge unknown, though. This is the problem. And I think we sort of get these quite sort of, um, uh, you know, in an era where we seem to look for definitive answers about what the future holds, you know, we look for those people who seem to have a clearer crystal ball. Uh, I'm afraid those people uh, may just be um, having you on a little bit. Well, you've said this before, haven't you? That the, the more forthright and, and confident the pronouncement, the less likely it is to be true. Yeah, the less you, less you should trust that person. You know, I think that's probably, um, probably true. And I think with regards to the Bank of England, you know, if you think about um, the demand side and the supply side of the economy, uh, you know, the thing like, things like the amount of labour and available to us, we just don't know which one will be hit more or less um, uh, at the moment from our current vantage point by an exit without a deal. Now, you know, personally, I hope we won't have to find out um, and that uh, there is some sort of deal on the table. Um, but, you know, the Bank of England is in, a, is, is in a bit of a quandary. Now, another thing that came out of that MPC meeting was the fact that the Bank of England is not going to be buying back any of the bonds that were issued after the financial crisis. So there's about 435 billion of, of bonds were issued. That's in contrast to the ECB, who are buying back some of those bonds, aren't they? I wonder, d- d- does that signal anything to us? Oh, it's quite, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in the central bank uh, world at the moment. I mean, this may sound like a perverse thing to say, but actually uh, central banking is uh, probably a little bit too interesting at the moment. People are having a big debate about where uh, central bank um, influence, and remember, these are unelected institutions um, where their power ends and where where it stops. And there's also a debate which we discussed on on a recent podcast about what the next move is. Uh, you know, because in a sense, um, with regards to quantitative easing, one of the problems that you still have uh, in the modern economy is that we are the dominant money printers. You know, not just us three, uh, but uh, but you know the wider population because we're in charge of uh, whether we want to go along and actually borrow money. Um, and the banks then are in charge of deciding whether you know they want to lend it to us. Now, for much of this economic cycle, as we've pointed out, that actually that's um, that that a the demand for credit has been somewhat lacking, and b the the supply side has been a bit lacking as well in terms of banks have been sort of 
rebuilding capital ratios and so on. So in a sense, you can think about, you know, leading a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Now, the point about it is that the next step uh, in central banking that people are talking about, this idea of helicopter money, well, that is uh, both leading the horse to water and shoving its head under the water and making it drink. Um, and so that's the thing that they're talking about next. But we don't think we're there yet. But it's certain. I mean, there are other sort of stories going on. And there are people that I think central bankers are increasingly urging um, governments to come along and do their bit uh, to help out. Now, one thing I did want to touch on, you, I saw an article that you had published on LinkedIn earlier uh, this week, suggesting the rising chances of a kind of green New Deal, a green equivalent of the famous post-war Marshall Plan. And last night, the German coalition was locked in in talks all night on exactly that. What's the story there? Yeah, well, so it's a, a, another all-nighter for Frau Merkel. She seems to like these kinds of uh, the way to this way to negotiate. Um, and and a, we've got a sort of press conference coming up um, uh, shortly, so we'll hear more. Uh, the the readers may know, or listeners may know more about this um, by the time this podcast is released. Um, but it, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that people are talking about um, at the moment is the need for uh, the German government to spend a bit more of that capacity it has. Uh, the German government hasn't borrowed very much relative to many other uh, developed world governments. Um, and they're famously frugal. The German people uh, you know, feel very strongly about this too. But what we are facing, one of the more interesting European political trends that's not been so widely reported um, necessarily, has been the surge in support for the Green Party or Green Parties. And this change in political hue is really uh, potentially changing the debate um, in terms of kind of um, fiscal plans. And so there is increasingly like this talk of, um, you know, a massive need to update the energy infrastructure um, in Europe and doing it in a way that would uh, move it, you know, to the next century, save the environment, so to speak. So it could be that the kind of the, the constraints that we face, you know, the, the soon to be irreversible damage to the environment um, may help Europe get to the next stage um, of that kind of necessary construction of a, a plausible fiscal and political architecture for the euro. Now, you've just touched on an important point that I alluded to in the introduction, that of the Green New Deal. But if we look at Amazon, under a little bit of pressure externally, but I'm sure decisions internally for the right reasons as well. I'm sure there's a very good commercial rationale for it. But 100,000 new vehicles, electric vehicles, Jeff Bezos is talking about purchasing. This is this feels to me like the, the day-to-day impact that investors can access for impact investment, green investing. This has stopped being a niche that sits on the side. And the issue of corporate social responsibility, the importance of where energy comes from, moving towards uh, uh, green renewable energies and things like that, it's actually seemingly having a quite a commercial impact. Now, you and the team have, have historically done a lot of work in this area, particularly on impact investing. Are you seeing that this is more of a wholesale change for a lot of the big companies that uh, that we invest in? Yes. I mean, it's. I think there's an acknowledgement um, now that there is a much wider, uh, much bigger toolkit than we may have had previously um, to try and positively influence 
um, influence, uh, you know, positive environment, uh, environmental outcomes. Um, uh, so, you know, one of the examples that we've used in the past is, you know, the idea of the smartphone. You wouldn't think that that is something that's necessarily an environmentally sort of friendly or a, you know, helping us to advance that cause. But think about, you know, people of our age, less Sophie's age, maybe people of our age, uh, the youth uh, wouldn't know about ghetto blasters and things like that. But, you know, think of the 40 odd consumer products that the smartphone cancelled and condensed into one single product. And this is not just a luxury good. This has become, uh, you know, available. I mean, about half the adult human population of the world now have a smartphone. So that's a sort of a, a pat example, but certainly companies are looking for a lot of different ways in which they can positively impact the environment. And this is giving investors more options um, with which to uh, give capital to companies that are doing stuff that they want to do, that are consistent with their environmental or social uh, objectives, um, and actually make a return out of it. So it doesn't have to be just charity. And of course, as it creeps more into the mainstream political agenda, then it will have even more of a legal and regulatory impact on well, this companies is, I, mean, as well. I think this is a really interesting point, just quickly, because you know previously we've talked about the impact of the extreme ends of the political spectrum on influencing centrist parties' policy. But actually, what you might be also seeing here is that the Green Party's ability to influence uh, the way that government is run, even if they're not on the inside of coalitions. And, and like I say, you know, this Green New Deal, I mean, if it does come about, and it's a huge thing in Europe, and it would, it, it, the amount of dislocation and all that kind of stuff that it would result in means that it, it's, it's, we're a long way from it. You know, this is just the starting point. But if you can get that done, that sets an incredible precedent for, you know, for, for how to move to this next stage of development. And it would also create an incredible opportunity for uh, active investors. I think that's probably the case. Well, thank you very much for your insights. Sophie, thank you as ever for joining us. Really important that we get your input when uh, the political scene is moving so quickly. And thank you all for joining us as well. We look forward to catching up with you again on Word on the Street next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.